Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and today I'm joined by a special guest, Doug Smith of the Toronto Star, whose book, We the North, 25 Years of the Toronto Raptors, came out this week. Doug, thanks so much for making us a part of your book tour. Joseph, I'm glad to be here. No problem at all. Yeah, as someone who grew up uh, a Raptors fan in Toronto, I mean, my interest level in this was obvious, but I really do think, based on reading it already, I kind of binged it, um, that basketball fans of any stripe can enjoy this book. There's some really great stuff in there if you want to read about, you know, the early misadventures of an expansion franchise. If you want to read about Isaiah Thomas's first venture into team management, if you want to read about the various stages of Vince Carter's legendary Raptors career. And his relationship with the city and the franchise. And if it happened in the first quarter century of Raptors basketball, chances are Doug has it somewhere in this book, uh, which also includes some great little anecdotes and comedic levity. By the way, the, the Vincenzo Esposito section had me cracking up. I mean, you, you can kind of say your piece if you want off the top about what you hope people take from this book, Raptors fans or not. And then I think we can get into it. Well, yeah, you know, Joseph, it, it wasn't, we didn't want to laser focus on the championship year because it's more of a story, I think, of the evolution, not only of the of the Raptors, but of the sport in Canada and Toronto. And I think that you can sort of see it going from, you know, 1995, it was basketball was an oddity. And now it's uh, a mainstream sport right across the land. And certainly in Toronto, it's one in one A with the, with the hockey, in my opinion. We wanted to touch on all the, not the hot points, but all the, the developmental points that a lot of stuff that happened in you know, late 90s, early 2000s is the reason that they were able to win a championship in 2019. You mentioned one of the things I want to talk about as well, just the way um, not just the franchise has grown, but kind of the way basketball um, has taken on a life of its own in Toronto and in this country. And, you know, what I kind of wanted to do, because obviously I want people to read the book themselves, but I wanted to pick out a few things throughout the book that piqued my interest and maybe have you talk about them and uh, and maybe delve into some stories there. And the first one I wanted to ask you about is you mentioned in the book that you ended up doing this all because I wanted to write about basketball in 1994 when no one else did. It's crazy to think about that given not just the media landscape, but the basketball landscape in Toronto now. Okay, can you maybe just talk to us about that and what that was like, you know, 26 years ago, no one in Toronto or Canada wanting to write about the NBA? Well, um, I couldn't skate, which was one big deal. And I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't into hockey. And, you know, sports journalism back then, the pinnacle in Canada was covering the NHL. And you'd started out, however, that's where people wanted to get to. However, it took whatever the process was, that's, you know, you wanted to write about the Leafs, the Canadians, uh, the, the Flames, the Canucks, the Oilers. Um, I didn't have that career path. I, I had done uh, football during the Rock and Ismail era here in Toronto. I had done the help, help the baseball during the 92 and 93 World Series wins. But basketball was something uh, that I grew up playing it in high school and college. Um, grew up in the Niagara Peninsula, so the Buffalo Braves were a thing. I knew the sport a little bit. I, I liked it a lot. And frankly, you wanted to get in on history. It was, some, you know, it was the first new pro sports franchise in Canada, I guess, since the 1977 Blue Jays. And the opportunity to be part of chronicling the start of something that might be historic was, was pretty intriguing. But frankly, there weren't, lot, there weren't a lot of people who, in my business, who wanted to write basketball because it was new and it was not hockey. Yeah, it's just, it's crazy to think about that now, right? Because, you know, we're sitting here in Toronto, but even no matter where you're sitting, even if it's not an NBA market, especially with the way the social media era has gone, the NBA, if you're into media and you're into building relationships with guys and digging into, you know, really fascinating stories and drama around the scenes too, like the NBA is really king there. And yeah, it's just, you know, could you imagine now in 2020, if 
you know, there was a writing opportunity for someone in the NBA and, and for them to not even have anyone else wanting to do it. It's just, yeah, it's kind of shows you a sign of the times. Well, one of the uh, things I want to ask you about as well, because you mentioned it in that early section, and I just wanted to hear the story from you because it's not actually in the book, but you mentioned uh, a time, I believe in the inaugural season when you got, when the Nuggets mascot hit you in the, in the face in the glasses with the, <laughs> with the t-shirt cannon. You can tell us that story. That was, that was I think that there was a second or third year. We're in a preseason game in Colorado Springs. Um, the Raptors were playing the Nuggets. It was one of those neutral site games that we all hate because nothing ever works in the arenas. Little tiny arena on the Air Force, campus of the Air Force Academy, I believe. Maybe 9,000 seats, and we were sitting at the top of it in the, the press box, not courtside. And we were typing away. It was a timeout in the third quarter, I believe. And we're sort of heads down on the computer trying to write a little bit. And all of a sudden, this thing hit me in the face, right in the corner of my glasses, broke my glasses, and it was one of those T-shirts fired out of one of those stupid T-shirt cannons by Rocky, whatever the mascot is of the Nuggets, broke my glasses, gave me a little cut over the eye, and the thing was, the T-shirt was like a small, men's small with the Nuggets schedule on it, so I couldn't even use it. I want to throw it out. In fact, I think I did throw it out. But yeah, that's why uh, mascots and I have a bit of a history, and T-shirt cannons are not a favorite thing of mine. I don't think the T-shirt cannon even existed anymore at Raptors games, but I remember growing up going to games, whenever the cannon would come out, one of the things you kind of always think about is like, oh, I wonder if that ever hit somebody in the face, you know, what kind of damage that can do, and I guess now we know. It can, it can be a bit of a jolt. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's not like getting smacked with thunder sticks, but it's not, it's not any fun. Another funny thing, too, from that kind of early section, you, you mentioned that the Raptors mascot proposed to his then-girlfriend, now-wife, while in full costume at a uh, at a game one time. Can you give can you give us that story? Like, what, what went down there? It was the very first Naismith Cup in Winnipeg, and there's a connection between the Raptor and Winnipeg, and he and his, then at that point, girlfriend were there, and he did propose to her the day of the very first Naismith Cup in uniform, in costume, in the Winnipeg arena. I didn't know that story until last season when I was sort of doing some research for the book. And that's that's pretty dedicated right there, man. I can't believe she said yes, but they're happily married 26 years later and got a bunch of kids and everybody's, everybody's cool. But yeah, that was pretty weird. I'm glad you brought up the Naismith Cup because it kind of segues to the Grizzlies and, and the next question I had for you, which is, and you, you mentioned a little bit about it in the book, and it's something that even myself, you know, as a young fan and now someone in media, something I still don't quite understand is, can you explain to us why, in those early years, why part of the expansion agreement at the time involved the Raptors and Grizzlies not being able to make top picks? And it wasn't just in that first draft, if I remember correctly. It was it was for the first few years because the Grizzlies, uh, I believe, got screwed out of a potential number one pick in their second or third season because of this rule. So can you explain, not just to me, but to our listeners, why that rule was put in place as part of the expansion agreement? And the Raptors got messed up too. They actually won the lottery in their second year and had to go pick second and end up getting Marcus Camby instead of Allen Iverson was the first pick, although there's some question whether they would have taken Iverson having already had Damon Stoudemire. But that was that was the league making it really, really hard for any new team to get good. And they had gone through, the Orlando Magic won a bunch of lotteries in a row as an expansion team. They got Shaq, they got Penny, I think who they turned into or Chris Webber, they're turning into Penny, whatever the whatever the process was. I think they won the lottery two or maybe two or maybe three years in a row. And the league was not going to have that happen again. It was not going to allow that kind of stuff to go on. And part of the agreement was for the first three years, if they won the lottery, they had either Toronto or Vancouver, they had to pick second. And it was just the other owners screwing over Toronto and Vancouver and making sure that 
they were competitively unbalanced for the first few years at least. The same thing they didn't they weren't allowed to spend completely to the salary cap in those first three years. There was they had really they had to go to a percentage, so that sort of limited the kind of player they could get. Yeah, the league, you know, they got a lot of money, 100, 125 million, I think, at, the, at that time was a lot of money for an expansion franchise. But the other limitations on it were really, really harsh too. But you want to be in a club, you got to play by the club's rules. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, I can understand it from the perspective of uh, maybe not wanting to give the expansion teams an unfair advantage over the teams already in place. But yeah, it just doesn't make sense to me that they would put up so many roadblocks to success. And, you know, obviously in the Raptors case, it was fine. You know, we're sitting here a quarter century later talking about the first quarter century of Raptors basketball. But with the Grizzlies, it definitely had an impact because they were just never able. And I know other things went in there too. You know, maybe some incompetent management from top to bottom, but those roadblocks the league put up definitely had a hand in keeping the Grizzlies down. Yeah, exactly. They were part of it. I think the Grizzlies, I think part a big part of the Grizzlies story at the end was ownership and it was a lack of uh, committed ownership to staying there obviously with with Heisley when he moved into Memphis but you know the first group sold rather quickly it wasn't set up like the Raptors became set up where one entity owned everything the hockey the basketball and the arena they were paying rent the Grizzlies they were kind of frozen out of most sponsorship deals by contracts that existed between the Canucks and the arena at the time there was a lack of commitment really deep pockets and business acumen at the, at the very top of the Grizzlies. And that, you know, that was an issue in Toronto at the start and until the third season when Maple Leaf sports entertainment became a thing, when I guess they came together in February of 98, um, you know, there were some issues there. There was no way that I think that the, the Raptors and Leafs could have existed each playing in their own arena in Toronto, but getting everybody together in Toronto was, was the thing I think that allowed it to flourish. That conglomerate, Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment, the next thing I actually wanted to ask you about is you mentioned in the book that Isaiah Thomas actually might have had some of these perhaps, um, I don't know, visions is the right word, but he kind of had this idea maybe that one day the best course of action would be to merge the Leafs and the Raptors, but he actually saw it as one day the Raptors would be buying the Leafs because he had these grand ambitions. You also mentioned that Isaiah Thomas was maybe a little more creative thinking and progressive with his basketball uh, intuitions as well. Like I know you mentioned at one point, he wanted to completely uh, redo the way teams do layup lines and, and stuff like that. Can you maybe talk to us a little yeah. bit about I- Isaiah Thomas's thinking outside the box? Because for my generation, like not many people think of him as a potentially progressive executive. They kind of see him with his stained legacy and especially a guy that burned a lot of bridges in New York. So can you talk to us a little bit about Isaiah in those early years of the Raptors? Uh, he, he, Isaiah was, he was a tireless worker to promote the game. You know, he would go and talk to your service club. He would talk to reporters all the time. He would pitch tickets as much as he could and sort of preach the gospel. And he did have, uh, you know, the days he was, he was, he ended up leaving when uh, John Bento and Alan Slate divorced. There was a shotgun clause applied, was, was called by shot, shotgun clause by Slate that forced Bento to either buy him out or leave or sell his shares to, to Alan. And he did. And that was kind of the end of Isaiah because he and Slate weren't really tight and he and Bito were, and you could see the writing on the wall at the time. But after Isaiah left, I remember Alan Slate invited me to his office atop one of the buildings downtown and showed me some paper. And Isaiah, you know, maybe he didn't have the money, maybe he couldn't put together the financing. But one thing I saw was a piece of paper that had what Maple Leaf Sports became. Hockey, basketball, arena, television networks, 
golf tournaments, other sports events. You could he could see you could see that he thought it needed to be way bigger, and maybe that was the way professional sports at the time was going, and it's what it became. You look at Maple Leaf Sports now, and they've got everything. They've got you know the soccer, the baseball, the 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 hockey, the basketball, the uh, football team on the periphery with Larry Tannenbaum, <laughs> but the arena and the television networks, and they they are uh, you know real estate development and, and restaurants and that kind of thing. And I think Isaiah saw that coming, and he couldn't pull it off. And it, I think it was probably financially, the finances were the reason. But I think he saw it becoming what it became. And who knows if he had been able to do it, whether it could have got to the level it is now, I don't know. But I think he saw where it needed to go, and it, it did need to go that way. There was no way the Maple Leafs and Raptors could exist in Toronto, each playing in their own arena. It would have been too cutthroat. There wouldn't be enough money to go around. And even you mentioned like him wanting to, for example, redo the way layup lines were done in this kind of progressive. Like, what was that about? It was just trying to trying to do something different. I, I don't know. Obviously, it didn't it didn't work. It didn't change because they're still doing the same thing they were doing in 1948 before games. Except there's a little bit more science to it. But maybe you know, maybe there's a way to run five man drills instead of layup lines. Maybe there's a way to get loose with three on three drills or three man weaves. I, I don't know, but. You know, at one point he thought, okay, let's try to figure this out. It didn't happen, but you got to give a guy credit. You think, you try to think a little bit outside the box, but, you know, tradition is tradition and people run layup lines because they've been doing it since the Huskies and the Knickerbockers played in 48. <laughs> one thing I learned basically when I first opened the book is that uh, this wasn't your first book, that you actually wrote a Damon Stoudemire story, Airborne, the story of Damon <laughs> Stoudemire back I in, in, I can't in, in believe, the late 90s. I yeah, can't so I was going to ask you about Damon. I can't believe you haven't read it. <laughs> I'll like, have to get it. I'll have to get it. But, I, don't, uh, I don't think you can't find it. You've got to go deep in the remainder bins, pal. Deep in the remainder bins. Well, I mean, what was that like? I mean, A, covering Damon at the time, because, you know, he's one of the underrated athletes in Toronto sports history, just because he was he was this kind of flash in the pan from a Toronto perspective and that it was such a short-lived period, but he was so good. Oh, he was outstanding. Uh, he was outstanding. And, and you had a front row seat for it and then, you know, wrote a book about it. So what was what was Damon like in those early days of his NBA career? Uh, a good guy. You know what I mean? I, I really liked him. We did the book because he was very, very popular and it was a good way to get his biography. You know, you can't write, you shouldn't ever try to write a biography of a 23-year-old kid. But I did <laughs> because that's what we did. We wanted to get one out there like to, to do something sort of big on Damon. I, I'm not sure... He welcomed or accepted the responsibility for being what he was. And I love Damon. We talk to this day. And I think he regrets the way it ended, obviously, because he he's come to love Toronto. Um, he's coaching at University Pacific and spends time up here recruiting Canadian kids because he knows what the basketball is up here. But I think he, I'm not sure he accepted the responsibility for being the true face of the franchise. He did all the media. He talked after every game, often, you know, often very abjectly disappointed because they lost and he was a, a very intense competitor but the other stuff I'm not sure he really liked and you know you needed somebody uh, who embraced it a little bit more but he as a player he was outstanding you know I don't think you know people don't re- don't remember because it was 26 or 25 years ago but that rookie of the year season he was really really good daily beat the 72 and 10 bulls there's a quote from Steve Kerr who played in that game that's something a lot that gets in the book that says, you know, we just couldn't stop Damon. He was doing whatever he wanted to do. And this kid, you know, he's legit. You know, he's not six feet tall. 
And he was absolutely taking control of basketball at the time. Yeah, and then, I mean, basically right after the Raptors stint, when he gets traded to Portland, he ends up playing very big, meaningful playoff games and, and joining a contender basically immediately and being a key part of a contender. His, his career, I think, is, you know, I'm not sure he's ever going to get the credit he deserves, but he was on a lot of really good teams and was a really engine driver of them. I don't think at the start that he like he wanted to leave Toronto. Isaiah had left. And Isaiah was his godfather, and then that was the, the tandem. And when Isaiah left, it was only a matter of time. And I think Damon getting traded to Portland was probably not – it turned out okay because that team was really good at the end of his time there. But at the start of it, I remember talking to him a couple of years after and thinking and saying, you know, maybe going home again wasn't a great idea because there's a lot of other pressures and tugs. And, again, I don't sure, I'm not sure that he loved them. Well, from Damon to another guy who there were definitely, I think, on both sides, some regrets about the way it ended. And that's obviously, you know, Vince Carter. Uh, he wrote the foreword for this book, which is great. And, and you dedicate three chapters to him and, and to all the ups and downs, you know, that he went through in Toronto and his relationship with the city, which, you know, obviously anyone knows the story of Vince Carter in Toronto. You need three chapters to tell it. What was it like having a front row seat for the, the meteoric rise of Vince Sanity? Like, can, can you put yourself back there right now and even describe it? It was crazy. It was it wasn't like the Beatles, but it was almost like the Beatles. Like I, we would go, you know, back then we would spend a lot of time. Sometimes we would actually stay in the same hotel as them and pay our own freight, of course. But and the crowds lining up to get autographs when the bus came or when the bus went to the arena or, you know, the middle of the night after the charter landed. It, it was it was unbelievable. I was in Oakland with them um, during the dunk contest. And I don't think, I can't think of another night involving a Raptor that was more special than that, an individual Raptor. That was, that was the, the watershed moment in that era. Um, you know, we, we saw, I was with him in the, at the Sydney Olympics when he dunked over Frederick Weiss. And it was, his global popularity was singular. And it was the thing that made the Raptors legitimate. They were a team, but they finally had a guy that people around the league and around the world paid attention to. And you cannot diminish that. There are, I would say tens of thousands of Canadian kids playing basketball because of Vince Carter, that they picked up a ball the first time because they wanted to be a bit like Vince in that early, that 1999 to 2004 era. And it changed the scope of the game in the country because he was ours. He was the Raptors and we had never had it. And the Raptors had never had anybody like that. The, the, the country never had a basketball player like that. And you cannot underestimate his impact on both the team and the sport, not just in Toronto, but across the country. Yeah, I've often said that, you know, if you consider the global reach of the NBA and basketball in general, that if you really think about it, Vince Carter at his peak, at his apex, was probably the most popular athlete that has ever played for a Canadian sports franchise. Like when you talk about worldwide fame ever, because, you know, Hockey obviously doesn't have that reach. Even baseball doesn't have that reach completely internationally. And what the level he was at from a fame and like popularity standpoint in the early 2000s in a global game, I, I just don't think any Toronto or Canadian-based athlete has ever matched it. No, they haven't, and I don't know that they. I don't know that they ever will. What Vince was globally was un, It was incredible. It was unbelievable. I, I used to tell people if you put. In 2001, after the dunk contest, and you would put Vince Carter in one corner of the Eaton Center and Matt Sundin in the other corner of the Eaton Center, I don't know who would have drawn the bigger crowd. 
I think it probably would have been Vince. Yeah, he, I agree. He was that big. And in Toronto, that was unheard of. You know, and I, there was, you know, I do think at, at some level there was resentment towards him from a lot of the hockey people because he was so big. I'm not sure that I think he was a little bit at times overwhelmed by it and not really comfortable with it, but he grew to be comfortable with it. Uh, but he was, you know, that era, that, that those, those three years, like 2000, 2001, 2002, were, will never be matched in, in the popularity of an individual Raptor. I know Kyle Lowry, people ask me all the time, who's, a, who's the greatest Raptor? And I say, well, Kyle Lowry's probably the best Raptor player Vince Carter is the most rap, most important rapper player. And I think there's a difference. When you say there was resentment, you think there was resentment from the hockey people. Do you mean just like fans or media? Or do you mean actually within Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment that, you know, some of the people on the hockey operations side were, were a little peeved about the attention Vince was getting? Oh, I think it was, I think it was across the board. I think, the, I think it was in the media. I think it was among casual fans. And I think there was some jealousies in the organization back then. I, it doesn't exist now. They're very much together and they... They understand that if one one has success, it's good for the other one. I'm not sure that back in the day that was an opinion that was shared. That there was a lot of we got to get ours at the expense of them. Now it's we got to get ours together, and I think that's a been an interesting development in the in the inner workings of Maple Leaf Sports. You mentioned in the book that at the time, you know, the Vince fallout and the trade happened, you actually wanted to write at the time a, a kind of in-depth feature about how maybe how it all went down and what went wrong and, and the timing just wasn't right. Looking back now, I know both there was faults on both sides, but do you think the the vitriol that Vince got in this city was fair given everything. You know, there was the reports about him tipping off the Sonics and that, yeah, and so much came out. Do you think it was fair or do you think it was overblown and maybe he caught way too much blame um, and, and and the team actually skirted some? Oh, I thought, I always thought he caught too much blame. Always. From the from the day the trade happened to the day he first came back for the, that first game with the Nets, we didn't play around Christmas and in that playoff series. I... I always thought he got too much. The, the fans needed someone to blame, and he was an easy target. And I'll give you got to anybody has to give him credit because all those years when he got killed coming back to Toronto, every time he came back, he never badmouthed the soul. Ever. He never ripped the organization. He never ripped the people there. He never ripped the fans. He never exploded. He did, he went about his business. Complimentary to the city, complimentary to his time here, complimentary to what it allowed him to become. And I think he handled it far better than a lot of people would have. But yeah, they, they need you know the team, the trade was horrible. The return on oh the trade God. the return on the trade was despicable. <laughs> and I think the fans needed someone to blame. The team became very not good, and Vince was an easy target. The obvious question that's come up, and again, you've probably gotten this one a lot too. I know I have um, from fans is about now that Vince is retired, what's going to happen in terms of the Raptors retiring his jersey and oh, if there's ever going to be a statue, which, you know, I think the jersey will come eventually. Do you think the Vince jersey retirement in Toronto or jersey honoring, whatever it is, happens as soon as fans are back in the building now that he's retired? Or do you think they wait for Lowry as some have suggested maybe he, you know, to, to ensure Kyle's the first guy to get that honor? I think they will do something for Vince. I, I don't know whether you know, I'm not a big guy for I'm not big on Jersey retire, number retirements. I think there's other ways to honor guys, whether it's statues or, or like the Leafs have done with that you know, Heroes Row or whatever they call it, the, the, the sculptures yeah. up front. Maybe there's some other way to do it than retiring a number because I think there needs to be for any player, you need to have some sort of 
uh, area or way that the public can go and see what you've done for him. And if you just hang a guy's number from the top of the arena, what, 1% of the team's fans ever get to a game in the building to see this? But everybody can walk around the arena? And I think they need to do something that's a little bit more public. I don't think you can do anything for a guy while he's still playing. So if they have to wait for Lowry to retire, maybe they do. But I think they would. I think they should and will do something for Vince before before too long. I think next year is going to be a weird year. I don't know yeah. if there will be fans in the building, how many there will be, when they will be allowed in. But maybe the start of that twenty one twenty two season, you do something. Another guy that obviously will get some sort of honoring one day uh, is DeMar DeRozan. And that's a, a player that you built a really good relationship in his years here and wrote one of your most important stories. And, it, you know, this uh, this section of the book was actually used as an excerpt in the Toronto Star last week. But, you know, if any one of our listeners, again, whether you're a Raptors fan or you're listening from outside of Canada, remembers a couple of years ago when DeMar DeRozan spoke out about mental health and depression, it was Doug Smith that he opened up to. So I, I know you talk about it in the book. And like I said, I know there was an excerpt in the Star last week, but can you maybe walk us through how the process of getting that story out there for DeMar and how that came together? Yeah, it was funny. I think people are pretty familiar. I know, Joseph, you are, that on the Saturday night of an All-Star, the All-Star break, he tweeted out that, you know, sometimes uh, or this depression get the best of me or something, some, I, the words, words to that effect. And it took a week before I could get any kind of one-on-one time with him. And when we did, we went to the back corner of the OVO Center where, um, away from scrums in the crowd. It was a Saturday afternoon practice. And I don't, I don't think either of us knew how big the story would become, but I think he knew he needed to say something. One, to explain the tweet that everybody had seen. And I think because he and I had built a relationship built on respect and longevity, I'd been around him every day of his career. And you get to know a guy and you get to respect him and appreciate what he does in his profession. And I think he has that for me, and I know I had it for him. And when the story came out, uh, I, I asked him about it last year, and it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's later on in the book as well, that he had no idea that it was going to get that big. But he knew he had to say it, and he felt comfortable enough saying it to me. And I was very proud of that and very happy for it. And I think it turned out to be it will be his lasting legacy to basketball. More than points, wins, games, that kind of career – that will be his his legacy in the NBA. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any doubt about that because it, it was a very important uh, moment, not just you know for a basketball player, but for athletes in general. And you saw that kind of it, it opened the door for a lot of you know whether it was Kevin Love in the NBA or, or other athletes. Um, Demar, I think, will go down as having opened the door and making it okay for professional athletes to talk about their mental health and I, and, I and so. I sure hope so. Yeah. And humanizing them in, in a big way as well. To to get that story and, and to have Demar open up to you like that, as you mentioned, it, it's about building that relationship. One thing I think you you capture well in the book as well is how the media game has changed, you know, over your quarter century covering this team. That's something I've seen as as someone who goes to the games and covers not the team. You know, I I'm usually in the visiting locker room in Toronto because I'm trying to grab quotes for, you know, stories I'm putting together about other players and teams in the NBA. But as someone who's at the arena about 41 times a year, for me coming in, like when I, I've been uh, credentialed now about six or seven years. And the one thing that I was surprised about because of, you know, what some other people had told me about building relationships in the locker room pregame and things like that. The one thing that surprised me is I was thinking like, hey, you know, I, I don't really get that because 
pre-game, these guys aren't talking. Some of them aren't, most of them aren't even around. There's like no accessibility here. And you, you address this in the book about how, you know, even maybe when you were first coming up, you were, you were able to just say, stroll into the, the room before a game and guys were actually around. And even if it wasn't to talk on the record about something, even if it was just shooting the shit about life, about basketball, whatever the case may be, how have you seen that change, uh, you know, over the years? And why do you think it is the way it is now? Where really that that kind of camaraderie, maybe the, some of the mutual respect and, and definitely the relationship building between the media and the players just is not what it used to be. I, I think, Joseph, I think one of the reasons is there's just so damn many of us. There's just yeah. so many. You've been in there. Those post game locker rooms are like a they're like a pool hall. It's huge. Packed. It's like a dance club. There's yeah. too many of us for any player to feel comfortable talking to one guy because he can't. As soon as I start talking to a guy, someone else comes over to join the conversation. The scrum develops. And you know, back in the day, that didn't happen. There were like five of us there, and you could go. You could get them after practice. You could get them after shoot around. You could have. You could develop that time. Now you really, really got to work at it. And most of the work happens on the road where there's far fewer of us. And a lot of it happens just by going every day. Like there are people who go to games and they're, they're hardworking journalists doing their job as best they can, but you never see them at the practice or the shoot around. And I think the players understand that. The players also know that if they come out and say something and it's sort of inflammatory, it's a two-day, three-day, four-day story, and they don't want that hassle. They really don't. I'm, I, this didn't make the book because this happened after as I was writing, but Norm Powell at one point this year was coming over to do a scrum at OVO back when there were scrums and there were practices and there were games in Toronto. And I jokingly said to him, I said, Norm, say something stupid. We need a story. And he just, just joking. He looked at me. He's done. I'm never going to say a thing. I said, why? Because if I do... It becomes a story, and I got to talk about it again tomorrow. So they know they know what the what the media is like, and how stories are now. They sustain themselves for days and days, and they don't want to do it because it's not worth it to them. They'd rather just sort of type it on their own their own website or or at the Athletes Tribune or whatever vehicle they have to get stories out, which is which is a very difficult thing for me to grasp because there's no accountability. I appreciate that guys can write in their own words or have ghostwriters or write their own website stuff or whatever, but there's no there's no no one there to question them to say, hey, okay, you said this, but what do you mean? Or can you expand on this? And that's the media problem of, of today, because the players they've cut us out for the most part. They don't they don't think they need us, and they, they the fans, readers, listeners, viewers need us because we can ask the questions that come from what they said, where they just, if they just write it, there's no accountability. They just say what they want, they got to say, and then it's gone. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point because I think the way a lot of fans probably see it is between social media and things like the Players' Tribune, we get this unfiltered access to the athletes. But I think what a lot of people don't realize is usually that's actually the more filtered version. And if you have not all media, but if you have a good media person and a good journalist, maybe helping deliver that message, it actually, there's a better chance it will be unfiltered than if a player maybe just says what only what he or she wants to talk about. You know, yeah, you, you even mentioned that like, you know, back in the day, you could actually watch a practice as a media person. Now they open it up for quote unquote, the last half hour or whatever the case may be. And you don't really see anything. But one of the things I think is is interesting because, you know, you talk about the different uh, media landscape now is and how there's so many of us. I think it's such a vicious cycle because there's so much more media now to serve this kind of 24 um, seven news consumption cycle and social media and everything. So there's more media and 
less players, you know, accessible and willing to, I guess, talk and tell their stories. So now you end up with more media, but less access for stories. And you have all these media people trying to fill this 24 seven loop. And I don't want to say creating stories, but that's how you end up in a situation where all people want to talk about or all they can talk about is a trade scenarios and the drama around the league and this and that, because they got to fill the time somehow they got to do their jobs, but they don't have the access. And there's too many of them. Like, because now everyone is so consumed by things like trade rumors and clickbait and stuff like that, it then filters down to the players who see it as, well, I don't want to get a soundbite out there and fuel these rumor mongers. So to me, it's just a lot of media, not a lot of access, more media needed because there's this 24-7 news cycle. It's just, uh, it's a vicious circle to me that maybe doesn't lend itself to good journalists telling good stories in sports anymore. No, it doesn't, Joseph. I'm sorry. The the, the, ma, the beast is too hungry and it has to be fed. It has to be. And unfortunately, sometimes it's fed by screamers. I think there's a way to feed it, to, to make points and be responsible and not make it about you or make it loud and overbearing and the end of the world. And, you know, that I think sometimes there's the, the scream factor among the media in North America is far too high. It's far less in Canada than it is in the United States. It's not even close, but it's still a little bit too high for me, for my liking, because it takes time to build relationships and build trust. A buddy of mine, Bob, the great Bob Elliott, back in the day, a really, really good friend of mine said, look, 100% of stories, 90 of them are tied, five of them you win, 5% you lose, don't sweat any of them. And now it's, there's this kind of rush to, okay, I got to get this first. People don't care about first anymore. They care about right. And they care about context. And you can't get, as a reporter, you can't get over the top when you win and you can't get over the top when you lose because life goes on. You got to work tomorrow anyway. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download The Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. I do have a couple more things I wanted to, uh, to touch on, uh, because kind of segueing from this uh, this media landscape and the need to fill it with sound bites, I called it the most random Raptors-related soundbite I have ever heard in my life, and I think you probably got a kick of it too, is randomly last week, David West, of all people, says that he believes the Chris Bosh, Andrea Bargnani tandem. I saw yeah, he, said, he said that the Bosh Bargnani tandem would blow this NBA out of the water. And that, you know, the problem was that the league let people like David West bully them too much. And and he thinks they would just run rough shot. Uh, I, I literally laughed out loud and called it the most random related Raptors soundbite ever because I feel like David West is forgetting, especially in Bargnani's case, his inability to defend in space or move his feet. And the league right now is so pick and roll heavy. I don't know how, how much into entertainment did you get out of that quote and and what were your thoughts on it i have the greatest amount of respect for david west but i thought he lost his mind that's the bottom line like bosh when he was here didn't venture outside of the painted area or the elbow i think he made like five three-pointers in his time in toronto he became the prototypical stretch four when he got to miami stretch five when he got to miami and expanded his game because he had to andrea barnardi wasn't he didn't Oh, 
<laughs> he wasn't that good a shooter to begin with. And he had no desire to be better. That was the thing with the thing that, that I we saw and I thought from Andrea right at the start. He had some skill, but he had no work ethic. He didn't I think he loved being in the NBA. I don't think he loved being a basketball player. And I don't think he had any desire to get better at his craft. And that's eventually what caught up to him. Plus, he wasn't all, like you're right. He couldn't move. He was he couldn't move. He would be he would be lost in today's NBA. And I, like I guess I love David West, but he's got some revisionist history going on there, big time. Yeah, West is usually good for a great quote, but usually it's a much more honest and impactful quote than that one. And yeah, in terms of Barclays, you're preaching to the choir as, as a, an Italian Canadian. I've often told people that guy brought disgrace. to to the Italian community in Canada. And also it just, he did not jive at all with what I grew up knowing Italian and or European athletes to be, which are often, even though there's a poise there, they're just usually so passionate and almost in a lot of ways too passionate and and melodramatic. And then you've got Bargnani, who is the complete opposite. This guy looked and carried himself like he did not care about a damn thing. The great, Um, great Maurizio Garardini, who was working with the Raptors at the time, who, who was, to this day, a dear friend now runs Fenerbahce in the, in the EuroLeague, told us the day that just after they drafted Andrea that oh, we didn't know anything about the kid. And he's, uh, Maurizio told us he's the most un-Italian Italian I know. And wow. that's not a good thing. <laughs> That's a great, that is a great quote, actually. Yeah, and even to your point about the shooting, that's the one thing I tell people all the time, too. Like, go back and look at his numbers. He was not a great shooter. He was just more willing to shoot it, and he was better at the time than a lot of seven-footers. But his actual percentages weren't great. He was a very overrated shooter. Yeah, he was not this guy who's going to revolutionize the game. I, mean, yeah. I know I think he had two years where he averaged 20 points a game. He started a playoff game and blah, blah, blah. But he was not a very good basketball player. The last thing I wanted to actually pick your brain about, because you you mentioned it in the book, and I've often said, especially now that the Raptors have had this championship run, it's one of the most undercovered what-ifs in recent NBA memory. And that is the what-if of if the Raptors had landed Steve Nash as a free agent in 2012. Because I think there are so many different lanes to explore. You know, does Nash not end up in a situation where he breaks his leg in his first game with the Lakers? And does he actually, is he able to extend his career far longer? Because that was the beginning of the leg issues and more hip issues, nerve damage. Obviously, if the Raptors sign Steve Nash, maybe they still go after Kyle Lowry, but certainly behind Steve Nash, even if if by chance he did end up here, there's no way Kyle Lowry becomes what Kyle Lowry is now if he spends those first two or three years in Toronto backing up Steve Nash. He probably doesn't come to begin with. Like I said, I just think it's one of the great unexplored what-ifs of recent NBA history. Oh, absolutely. There's no way they trade for Kyle Lowry if they get Steve Nash. It was one or the other. There's no question about that. But you're right. The Nash thing would have been very intriguing. I don't know that he would have been so immensely popular. I'm sure it might have turned him off a little bit because he's another guy who doesn't like it to be about him. And it would have been about him every single day because he was still a very, very good player. He wasn't he wasn't really at the end of his career until that first game with the Lakers when he blew out his leg. And if he doesn't blow out his leg and the Lakers with him, Dwight Howard, go, go on to win championships, everything changes. If he comes to Toronto... And they, they don't, therefore, don't get Lowry and they don't develop the Lowry DeRozan that allows them to DeRozan Kawhi, blah, blah, blah. You know, nothing in sports is linear, but that would have been fascinating to see how it would have evolved because it would have, you know, absolutely changed the trajectory of the franchise. I don't know where it would have got them, 
but it absolutely would have changed it, and it would have been quite fascinating to watch. I was I was all for them trying to sign Nash. I think people tend to forget that it went south for him because he got hurt, not because he got old. And I think he had a lot of good basketball left in him. It would have been pretty cool to see him here. Yeah, people forget that, you know, despite the back issues throughout his career and that um, congenital uh, condition he had, that for the most part, he had become a very durable, dependable player that would show up. He'd be on the court, you know, when the ball was tipped. It's not like he was this guy that was breaking down going into that season. So it definitely would have been interesting. But there are a ton of fascinating anecdotes, stories. And like I said, you don't just have to be a Raptors fan to enjoy them in the book Doug Smith wrote that is out now. We the North, 25 years of the Toronto Raptors. Doug, Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Like I said, I know you're on kind of a whirlwind book tour in in Canada right now. So I appreciate the time. I'm in my whirlwind book tour in the wilds of Mississauga. No, I (laughs) I appreciate it, Joseph. uh, Anytime. I'm glad to be on. Take care. See you down the road somewhere, I hope. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully see you at an arena sometime soon.